Blog Talk Radio. Hi there, I'm Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, and this show is a celebration of baby boomers who are embracing life as we grow older. And speaking of embracing life, today's show is guaranteed to put a great big smile on your face. It's certainly putting one on mine because I get to reconnect with one of my all-time favorite guests, Ivor Davis. Ivor is a legendary reporter and an author who's written about some of the most famous stars and big events of our lifetime, but this intrepid newsman enjoyed an adventure that would have been every boomer's dream come true. In fact, by back in 1964, Ivor accompanied four young lads from Liverpool as they made their first ever tour across America. His book, The Beatles and Me on Tour, shares first-person insider details of this incredible journey, so get ready to... Turn back in time, stand on your chair as I did years ago, and scream out the name of your favorite beetle, because Ivor's given us the inside skinny. So welcome, Ivor. Thank you so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to your vast audience, and thank you for that terrific introduction. Well, speaking of introductions, you have been on the show several times before, but we talked about your other books that was regarding uh, Charles Manson and, of course, those horrible murders. And I want to mention that at the end of the show, too, because you are quite the author. But I do have to say this is going to be a lot more fun. Definitely, definitely. It's always fun with you, Eileen. Well, thank you, Ivor. Well, it is with you, too, but we will just say the topic is a little more fun. And as you know, I'm a, well, not so recovering Beatlemaniac. I'm still a Beatlemaniac. And uh, the Beatles and me on tour, I want to say at the onset of the show, every boomer out there needs to have this one because we were all Beatles fans. It will make the perfect holiday gift for uh, your friends and an even better holiday gift for yourself. But you were right in on the start of it and the thick of things. So tell us again, if you don't mind, because I have asked you this before, but how you got that golden ticket to accompany the Fab Four. 1964, I was the West Coast correspondent for the London Daily Express, a large newspaper in the UK. I got a call literally (laughs) the morning of the Beatles' arrival in San Francisco, and my editor said, get up to San Francisco. The boys are arriving. I wondered who the boys were, but he quickly told me because communication back then wasn't that brilliant. Uh, I'd heard about the Beatles. I didn't know too much about them. And off I went to San Francisco, and wow, what an unbelievable journey that was. The next five weeks in the second limousine, in the next-door hotel room, And in the front row, as you screamed, and I couldn't hear what the Beatles were singing, Eileen. (laughs) Sorry about that, Ivor. Sorry. (laughs) Well, I I mean, I'm sorry. I was not the only one screaming. I might have been the loudest, but I was not the only one. But I was just wondering, you you did know about them, but you, I mean, and they were already a sensation around Liverpool and, of course, in England. But they, you know, they had yet to conquer America like they did before. So what were some of your first impressions of the lads? Well, they were quite jet-lagged when I saw them. And so when when I was introduced to to them in the San Francisco Hilton Hotel in August 1964 by Derek Taylor, who was their press guy and their pal, 
they kind of gave me such a warm welcome. They all grunted and then turned back to the <laughs> color t- to the color TV because in those days, believe it or not, they didn't have color TV in the in England. So the Beatles were fascinated by seeing themselves arriving at San Francisco airport on the nightly news in color. So the first greeting I got from them was uh, ho-hum. And then as we went along, I became sort of part of the family. They realized I was with them during for the whole duration. And so we became fairly friendly and pally. And it was a, a, a wonderful insight into uh, this rock and roll group that actually ended up, as you know, Eileen, conquering America and then conquering the world. Absolutely. Well, and the one thing I, I really, I mean, of course, your book is, I couldn't put it down. I have to reread it several times because uh, it's each time I learn something new. But I do have to say I'm glad because you kind of devote a chapter to each of the guys, and they were very different. Their personalities were, were very different. Oh, yes. Uh, they couldn't have been more different. But that, that was part of the magic. Uh, different personalities. John, the, the provocateur, the guy who loved to needle you, the guy who had a, a warped sense of humor. Paul, Mr. Personality. He always was very charming. Uh, George, who was uh, a little bit on the surly side, a young man who I had to write a column for him, and he wasn't too cooperative, but we soon sorted that out. And then there was Ringo on the drums. And Ringo was very young, of course. And drummers, if, I don't know if you've met any drummers, Eileen, or got to know them personally, but I don't think communicative skills in the verbal way is, is their strong point. Uh, communicative skills on the drums, now that's a different kettle of fish. Well, and you did bring up uh, the fact that you were the ghostwriter, uh, and George Harrison was supposed to send back, I believe, a weekly column, which you penned. And I do remember you, you're, you were saying that it was a little difficult sometimes, but I think the title of your first uh, article was It's Fab in Frisco, which I love, yes. being from the Bay Area. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about how that, that worked out for you, because it was not an easy road, road being a ghostwriter for George Harrison at the beginning. No, no, no. No, it wasn't. Part of the problem, Eileen, was very simply this. George went to bed about two or three in the morning, which was fine, but then he didn't wake up until noon, one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, which was well past my deadline for London. London was eight hours ahead. So for the first uh, few weeks, I, um, I used the term manufactured, the column, uh, which is what it was. I mean, I just wrote what I thought he would want to say. Uh, and it was fairly boring. It was a pretty awful column, I must admit, when I look at it again these days. And George, after a few weeks, read the column, which, uh, which his mother had sent to him. And he said, it's, it's, it's rubbish. Your column is rubbish, Ivor. I said, yeah, it probably is, George. But Tap, and you have to tell me what's going on in your skull. What's, you know, what do you, what's your opinion? And George actually saw it, saw the light of day. And I kind of converted him to waking up a bit earlier and to telling me what went on in his mind. And as a result, his column improved, and he was a happy camper. Well, thank goodness for that. I'm glad he was a happy camper, because if he could be a little surly, I think that's the way you referred to him. Or maybe that was John. I don't know. They could all. But, no, uh, no. Paul, it, who was, it was George. It was George, yeah. It was George. Well, uh, also, I want to say at the beginning of this book, um, 
I love the fact you start out with kind of listing each of the cities, and then immediately you put in an odd fact, which just piqued my interest in it. Made, and then, of course, you elaborate a little later on in the book. But do you have any odd facts you could share with us right now at the top of your head? Well, off the top of my head, I remember in Las Vegas, um, they were crazy about meeting Liberace. Uh, do you remember Liberace? For those of your of listeners, some of them probably do remember Liberace. He was in Vegas. He came to see them. And uh, they didn't want to meet him, really. I don't know why. Um, there were certain showbiz people like uh, Shirley Temple, who, of course, was a San Francisco lady. The great Shirley Temple who went backstage and they kind of, uh, they, they were, she was kind of forced on them. Uh, but I guess... A lot of celebrities wanted to try and get some of the Beatle magic to rub off on them. And the Beatles were very, very kind of less inclined to meet celebrities who they felt, wrongly or rightly, were trying to um, cash in on their fame. And um, Jane Mansell was another actress who tried desperately to meet the Beatles and actually pulled it off. So there were many people they wanted to uh, avoid. And many people, they love to meet, like Bob Dylan. They love Bob Dylan. They love Joan Baez. They love Burt Lancaster. They went to Burt Lancaster's house because the boys grew up on Burt Lancaster movies, uh, strange as that may seem. And they loved his films. And when he invited them to come to his house and watch a movie, uh, and they sat in his house in Beverly Hills, and suddenly, miraculously, out of the ceiling came a movie screen and wow can you imagine <laughs> like it, i mean uh, those kind of silly things that today we laugh at eileen yesteryear it was it was magic it was marvelous uh, uh, i mean a, a movie screen appearing from the ceiling oh my god so i remember that was a big fuss oh god how'd you do that plus you press this button and this comes down and we watched the peter sellers movie i, I it was it was very funny in retrospect and actually funny at the time. Well, and speaking of meeting stars, I, I oh gosh, I could talk to you for hours, so I have to kind of limit myself. But uh, Peggy Lipton had a little something for Paul, and uh, he was quite gracious in welcoming her. I understand from the book. Uh, uh, and say, also, that's, that's, yeah. By the way, gracious. Sorry to interrupt you. Gracious is a. Well, it's a kind of a nice word to use because she was <laughs> she was besotted by Paul. And I, I, I must tell you this because we were at a party and I was talking to Peggy and she said, I'm going to marry Paul. I mean, there was no doubt about it. Of course, she married Quincy Drookalike. Anyway, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, but I was just going to say, too, I've, you know, you talk about when they met uh, – Oh, Elvis. I, I'm so excited about Paul. Yeah. I can't remember his name. The King. <laughs> and it was a rather unique experience because uh, it wasn't documented at all. Well, one of the problems was we knew the Beatles wanted to meet Elvis. But in 1964, it never happened. They were all too busy. Elvis making movies, the Beatles traveling around North America. The next year, 1965, in the summer, uh, I got a call and they said, we're going to meet. They're going to go and see Elvis. They've been trying to pull it together. The, the, the bottom line to the story was I was lucky to go along to that, but Brian Epstein and uh, told Colonel Parker, the manager of the Elvis, no, 
photographers, no tape recorders, nothing to record it, and no press. Well, I was lucky to get in there. And that was a strange edict. I mean, this was an historic meeting between two of the gigantic legends of the rock and roll world, and nobody ever took a picture of them together as they as they jamboreed and, and jammed in Elvis's living room. I must say, it was quite remarkable, that get-together, and the Beatles and Elvis finally got, finally hit it off after about 20 minutes of, of discomfort and, and everybody sitting around and wondering, well, who should speak first? Elvis said, I'm going to bed. And then he said, he smiled, he said, unless you guys have come to jam, and that was the icebreaker. And they got along pretty well after that, after jamming and chatting and stuff like that. But they never, ever saw each other again. And I'll just add this little footnote. The reason why Elvis was a bit cool towards the Beatles, and the Beatles were in awe of Elvis, was, was that Elvis was jealous of the Beatles. They'd knocked him off the number one spot. He was king of yeah. the rock and roll world. The Beatles come along. They are king. These, these upstarts from Liverpool... And Elvis also was jealous because he was making three movies a year. The Beatles come along, they make one movie, A Hard Day's Night, and they're a smash hit. So the subtext of that meeting, I didn't know at the time, was Elvis was jealous. It didn't go off as well as as they expected. And yet uh, it was an historic event that nobody captured on film or on tape. Well, that is really something. But you're talking about photographs. I want to mention, too, in your book, you've got 40 photographs, and I don't think I've seen any of them before, maybe a couple, but they were really interesting, Ivor. How did you select the photos for the book? Did you uh, go through your archives? And Well, I, I did have a few archives. I wish I had more photographs, but, but my big plus was that I knew personally who, co- who covered the Beatle trip. There was a guy called Kurt Gunther, who was, uh, who was a brilliant photographer. There was a guy called Ron Joy. And I basically used the old pals act. Uh, unfortunately, Kurt d- had died by the time I wrote the book. And unfortunately, Ron Joy died um, before I wrote the book. But I was able to go to Kurt's son and get permission to use some of these sensational pictures that are, are in the book. And also Ron Joy's daughter, gave me the opportunity to use some of the pictures. So that's why it's a great collection of pictures. Some have been seen many, many, as you said, have not been seen ever before. And that kind of enhanced enhanced the book, I hope. Oh, absolutely, Ivor. And again, too, I mean, the way you are obviously, you know, you know what you're doing, and you, there's a lot of wit in this. There's a lot of insider juice. You spill the beans. You do all the other stuff. So it's such a fun read, in addition to, you know, again, for us Beatle fans, it doesn't get much better than that. But I did want to mention, too, we wanted to talk a little bit about the Beatles and their fortunes. Uh, but at the beginning, I mean, those shillings were hard to come by because, as you Shared Brian Epstein wasn't all that great a businessman, actually, or a, 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 I guess a, a producer or a manager from the music industry. Well, the, you're absolutely right. This is the myth that Brian was a brilliant businessman. Brian was not a brilliant businessman. I mean, he came from his family's furniture store where he ran the record 
department, or when I say department, it was a little hole in the wall in, in the furniture store. So Brian, who was a middle-class, upper-class lad from Liverpool, and actually, would you believe this, they, I remember Paul told me, well, we like Brian because he had a car. He had his own car. Wow. <laughs> wow, that is unbelievable. And so that was the clincher, a guy who had his own car and wanted to manage us. Well, I mean, there's no decision there. It's a, it's a, it's a slam dunk, isn't it? Anyway, I mean, in, in today's view, that's it, it, kind of ludicrous. So Brian took them over. But I want to tell you, he did change the, he did change the image. He did clean them up. He did produce the Beatles as we know and we love them way back then. And, and you've got to give him credit for that. But, but I'll tell you one very quick story, if I may, about Brian's bungling, if you like. Somebody said, when they go to America we should have somebody handling something called merchandising. Well, Brian had never heard of merchandising. So he wasn't terribly keen about that. So he called his lawyer and said, would you like to handle the merchandising in America? And the guy said, no, no, I'm, I'm a professional. So they gave it to another guy who suddenly said, okay, I'll handle it. Um, his name was Nicky Byrne. And he set up a company called Seal Tab. Or it's actually the Beatles spelt backwards and one day one day Nicky Byrne came to Brian's office after the American tour and he handed him a check for $10,000 and Brian was flummoxed he said wow he said tell me Nicky how much of this $10,000 do I owe you and Byrne said oh no Brian that's your share remember the deal is you get 10% we get 90%. Oh, my and gosh. And suddenly <laughs> Brian realized he had blundered badly. And um, so, I mean, that was an example of that. And in those days, the Beatles never had any money. If they needed any money on the tour, I'd see they go to, um, they go to Mount Evans, one of the road managers, uh, or Neil Aspinall, and say, hey, we need some money. But they never went shopping because if they stepped outside their hotel – particularly in San Francisco, you and all your friends and fans would have jumped, jumped on them and torn them to ribbons. Am I right or am I right? Well, you're right about that, I have to confess. <laughs> so so, so on, the money, on the money front, uh, the Beatles didn't worry about it, but then they became much savvier later in life because when they broke up, Paul McCartney had his father-in-law, Linda Eastman's father, and, and Linda Eastman's brother, who are lawyers in the entertainment business, and the other Beatle camp, led by John, um, had, had a guy called Klein, and they, got, they went to war over money, and suddenly the mm. Beatles realized they had, they had really not bothered about money, if, as long as they had a few shillings in their pocket. Anyway, later in, in life, they did much better. And I'll ask you, I, I, I'm going to just tell you this very quick. Paul McCartney today is worth $1.3 billion. So he's done okay. Ringo is, Ringo is on the poverty level. He is only worth $400 million. So they did all right in the end, but in the beginning, in the beginning, it's a bit chaotic. 
Well, and speaking of merchandise, I'm really glad to hear that neither of them are starving. I was concerned about that, Ivor, for sure. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. going back to the merchandising part, I just want to mention that you had your own experience because you bought your own souvenir, and it was swiftly deposited yes. out the window. So tell us that it story. Was, it was. Well, well I the interesting thing was back in the 60s, um, John didn't like commercialism. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but he didn't. He thought he thought that music, music and songs is the pure form of rock and roll. Of course, he hated merchandising. He hated anything programmed, anything like that. So one day I bought a Beatle wig. I think I paid all of a gigantic 50 cents or maybe even <laughs> 75 cents. So I, I, I went to his room and said, hey, John, look at this. Isn't this fantastic? Have you seen this? And he looked, he took it from me and he went to the hotel window. He opened the window and threw it out. That, that <laughs> one still owes me at least 50 or 75 cents and I've tried to get it from Yoko and she's ignored all my letters. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, um, but, but, but that was the feeling. They said, we want to be known for our music, our songs, and all this merchandising stuff, who cares? Well, Apple Records cares, believe me, today, because that the money keeps rolling in. What? That's not a beat song. And the money keeps rolling in. No, no, sorry. Uh, no. Whoever, whoever wrote that. Anyway, the Beatles have, uh, as you noted, that uh, you, know, you don't have to cry for the Beatles. They, they've done pretty well. Well, I am thrilled about that. I am. And, Ivor, I, again, I want to spend many more t- events or times chatting with you about all these wonderful stories you have about the Beatles. But before we have to close, I also want to let people know, if you haven't heard my other interviews with Ivor, and, again, we were talking about a totally different event, but uh, tell us a little bit uh, about Five to Die, uh, how you ended up with that story, and then, of course, your latest book, Manson Exposed, A Reporter's 50-Year Journey into Madness and Murder. Well, in a nutshell, Eileen, here it is. Uh, even shortly after the Beatles tour, tour and, and I got to know them, I got caught up in this horrible Charles Manson, Sharon Tate murder case, which, of course, occupied many of our lives for many decades. And I covered the story from day one. I followed it through. I interviewed many people. I covered the trial of Manson. I covered the way and I wrote uh, the book Manson Exposed a reporter's 50 year journey into madness and murder I, I was familiar with the case because I actually wrote the very first book Five to Die about the Manson murders in 1970 but my new book is, is really to, up to date of course as it has to be but I must add one other thing because we're coming up for the holiday season in the middle of writing about murder and Manson and the, and the delight of the Beatles, I also wrote a children's book, which is called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Penguins. And it's about four penguins who live on the British island of Falklands in the South Atlantic. And they want to be rock stars. And they do become rock stars because they want to become almost as big as the Beatles. So it's a kind of spoof on the Beatles. And it's for kids. And, of course, coming up for the holiday season, it's available on www.ivordavisbooks.com. 
as are all my books. Thank you for allowing me to do this uh, commercial. Well, this commercial, I would love to. I mean, I'm going to ask you while people are listening, so you have to start my uh, begging early, but I really hope you can come back on uh, maybe early December or something like that so that we can catch the holiday season and share more about all of your fabulous books. Uh, And just, too, so people know, it's still right up at the top. If you turn to Epics TV, you you were quite, you were highlighted in the Helter Skelter and American Myth, which is a fascinating docu-series on all of this stuff surrounding Manson. Thank you very much. Yes, it is. I'm still getting feedback. It's a tremendous, a tremendous, well, six hours of stuff about the Manson case. Terrific film footage. I happen to be in parts of it. I enjoyed doing it. And uh, thanks for mentioning it. And it's still airing uh, regularly every day, I think, on the Epics channel, as you said. Well, and Ivor, uh, again, this is always such a delight. Tell us the name of your website again because all your books are located there and you're on Twitter. I follow you myself, and uh, I know you're a very busy man with you, all of your personal appearances, etc. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, anything, uh, everything you want to know about me, and uh, obviously not too much really because it can get a little bit on the boring side, um, com. It's all there, my books, how to get them, and um, I hope uh, you tune into that uh, website. And um, thank you for having me on the show, Eileen. Well, and I have to say, Ivor, in no way could you ever ever be boring. It's always such a delight to have you on. Thank you for your time, your delightful British humor, (laughs) and sharing all those juicy details with us about our beloved lads from Liverpool. Thank you. Well, and please, for all of you listeners out there, I have links on the description here to Ivor's website and to his book, uh, The Beatles and Me on Tour. This is one, you're, as I mentioned at the beginning, you're going to want to have in your library for sure, but it also makes the perfect gift for all of our other Beatles fans and boomers out there. So until next time, this is Mary Eileen Williams at Feisty Side of 50 Radio, saying I'll catch you later. Bye-bye.